0: You're listening to the Unsiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Fred Schauer, who is a professor of law at the University of Virginia, and uh, the author of a number of books, probably, I think, One that's by now a classic, it's called Thinking Like a Lawyer, which I remember getting back when it came out, and you're probably on, I don't know, the 50th edition of that one by now. But most recently, we've got this book called The Proof, Uses of Evidence in Law, Politics, and Everything Else, and also a book called uh, The Force of Law, which is another fascinating book. Welcome, Fred. Thank you. Delighted to be with you. Now, look, this book is pretty timely, this book called The Proof, and you make lots of references to contemporary events, talk a little bit about how evidence is is going to be in the news no matter what, right? It's always been in the news. And so you could have written this at any point in our history. But what I find interesting is that, it, well, it engages the law of evidence, which is a distinct area of legal process, right? I remember taking a class of evidence class back in law school. But it also talks about how the law of evidence has evolved kind of in parallel to the scientific method, right? And in the scientific method, in scientific disciplines, we talk about proof, we talk about evidence, we talk about inference. And in the law, we talk about proof, and we talk about evidence, and we talk about inference. And these things, they are overlaps, but there's also some interesting procedural differences in these areas of inquiry. And I think that there's a presumption that all of these processes are about discovering truth, and there should just be like a single process by which we discover truth. But in fact, there are these very interesting differences, and it depends in part on what the goals are of the line of inquiry. So I guess the first question is, this is not explicitly addressed in your book, but do you think that there's, I mean, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of dialogue between kind of inference in scientific disciplines and, and inference in, in jurisprudence. They, they've evolved in parallel and there's been a little bit of conversation, but there historically it seems like the courts had to figure all this stuff out on their own. Right, and they weren't pinging the folks over in statistics all the time. And so I remember when I first took a course on evidence, I was like, "This is weird," because I learned all this stuff in statistics, and then here we're using like different language, and it's a little bit different. If you have a background in, in scientific inference and probability theory, does it help you to understand the law of evidence, and vice versa?
1: I think it it both helps and it hurts. It helps in the sense that, as you suggest. The basic idea of evidence and the basic idea that pervades this book is that evidence is a probabilistic enterprise that in almost every cases in which we are interested in evidence, the evidence tends to establish something or tends not to establish something, but it doesn't automatically, beyond a shadow of a doubt, make it 100% certain. So in that sense, it is probabilistic. Much of my work in various different areas is informed by what I might think of as amateur probability theory or amateur statistics or whatever. So there is that connection, and I think it's right, and I think it's important. But the major difference is that the law of evidence, as we understand it, at least in the common law world is largely about excluding rather than including things. In the common law world, juries are important, much more important than they are in the world of the civil law. And in the US, juries are more important than they are even in other common law countries. What we think of as the law of evidence developed largely in the shadow of worrying about juries, Not so much empowering juries, but disempowering juries, worrying that ordinary people, 12 people picked almost at random off the street, are going to get things wrong. So, the law of evidence is a series of principles largely of exclusion. So, to take the most obvious examples, if someone is charged with robbing a bank and They have been convicted on three previous occasions of bank robbery. The jury, in theory, will never find out about the three previous convictions. So, too, if you're involved in an automobile accident, if you have lost four or five previous litigation issues because you were negligent, or if your insurance company has raised your rates because they think you've been negligent, the jury will not hear about it largely because we have worried traditionally that juries will overvalue certain things. They'll take it more as more important than it really is, so the corrective is to undervalue it. Whether that's right or wrong or whether it's right or wrong in other contexts is controversial. But to understand the law of evidence, you really have to understand exclusions. To understand the science of evidence, you have to understand Inclusions, how everything might be relevant.
0: If we're trying to get to the right outcome, one way would be to expose decision makers to every fact that we know and every piece of evidence that we have, and then instruct them on the rules of proper inference and basically de bias them and convert them into these perfect Bayesians. Now, the alternative is to say, well, that's never going to happen. We're never going to be able to. Change people, particularly if we only have them for a short trial period. So what we're going to do is we're going to run the raw data through some filtration process to try and counter the. So the common law has a has a sort of a theory of human frailty, right? Sort of has a has an understanding of human biases long before the behavioral economists came along, right? So a more realistic view of what ordinary does. But, and I guess they have a higher esteem for judicial decision makers, right?
1: Right. So it has a theory of human frailty, as you put it. Indeed, it has a theory of human frailty as embodied in the jury that the common law, unfortunately, does not have, even in the context of judges. So- A number of the great evidence theorists of a century ago said um, that the only reason to have the exclusionary rules of evidence is because of distrust of juries. What we know now is that a large number of judges, when they are sitting without a jury, will be quite casual about the rules of evidence. The first time some bright young lawyer makes some sort of technical objection in a non-jury trial, the judge is likely to condescendingly look down at the lawyer and say, now counsel, there's no jury here, let's let it all in and I'll decide how much weight to give it. Um, It turns out that some Relatively recent research shows that, in terms of the kinds of things you were talking about that you call behavioral economics, in my household we call it psychology, given that my (laughs) spouse is a cognitive psychologist. But whether we call it cognitive or social psychology or behavioral economics, it turns out that some recent research has indicated that, at least in terms of many of the biases. That we attribute to ordinary people, judges and other legally trained people are just as susceptible as ordinary people. If that's right, it would certainly suggest that the it's not so much that the law of evidence has made a mistake by relying too much on jury incompetence, but maybe it ought to be broadened to think about lawyer incompetence and judge incompetence as well. And. Incompetence might be putting it a little bit too strongly, but it's just failure of understanding or susceptibility to the same kind of biases as everyone else. I should mention in this context that back 250 years ago, or a little bit less than that, Jeremy Bentham, perhaps our first great theorist of the law of evidence, and one of the world's great haters, hated the law hated the common law, and in particular, hated the law of evidence. He was under the view that what you've described as the scientific method, he described as the natural method. And his view was that the natural method, without all of these artificial exclusions, is what we should use. He did not carry the day. He would have said and did say that he did not carry the day because the law of evidence was a... Product of a conspiracy between lawyers and judges. I use that word advisedly. He called it Judge and Company. Judge and Company intentionally tried to make the law more complicated in order to increase the power of judges and increase the income of lawyers. And the law of evidence to him was a product of that. Whether that's true or not is debatable, but there might be a little bit of a germ of truth in the idea that the law of evidence that developed out of lawyers' beliefs in the incompetence of jurors may be a product of lawyers' beliefs about the deficiencies of ordinary reasoning.
0: So I don't think you ever used this phrase in the book, but I remember this phrase from law school, which is, you know, character evidence or evidence of, of prior criminal behavior is more prejudicial than Probative. I think that was is that the. I remember that was the, the phrase, and it, it kind of struck me as you know when I first learned about the idea that you could exclude this character evidence. I thought that that seems strange, right? Because if you were doing proper inference, this would this would be pretty pretty relevant information, right? So an alternative would be to say, okay, here's this information, but you know, discount it, or you know, remember the incremental value associated with this, right?
1: That's the idea. That's the idea of the natural method, as Bentham called it. But what the law in common law countries has tended to believe is that people are bad at this kind of discounting. And because they are bad at this kind of discounting, what the evidence actually tends to suggest, what the evidence actually tends to indicate in some cases, like character evidence or past practices and so on, is likely to be given more value than it actually has, and that the discounting process will fail. And indeed, we know that the discounting process fails some number of other areas. One of the forms of research that I've just suggested, I haven't done it, it's done by a, a group of researchers, they actually got judges at a judicial conference who be willing to do be willing to be experimental subjects. Uh, judges don't normally like to be studied. They think they have all the answers. they don't They think that people studying them tend to get it wrong. but they discovered a group of judges at a judicial conference that were willing to be experimental subjects. And what they did um, is they created some sort of mock case in which there was a piece of evidence that was, undeniably as a matter of law inadmissible. So, for example, when the police down somebody's door without a warrant and without probable cause and discover the fruits of some crime, drugs or something like that, the absence of probable cause, the absence of a warrant makes the search unconstitutional and unlawful, and the fruits of that search, absolutely no doubt about it, cannot be used. Judges know this. The judges in the experiment were given evidence that was illegally seized and searched and then, with the appropriate experimental manipulation, asked to make a decision about the outcome. It turns out, Judges cannot ignore what they know is a matter of law that they must ignore. They took it into account, even though they knew that they could not, even though they knew it was unlawful and unconstitutional to take it into account. Their outcomes, again, under the appropriate experimental manipulations, indicated that judges were not able to ignore what they knew they were supposed to ignore. Similar studies on similar things done with law students, law clerks, and others have produced the same kind of result. It's not so much that we should trust jurors less than we do,
0: maybe we should distrust judges more than we do. But there's something more to it, right, that you talk about in the book, right? Because if all we were if it was just about making sure that we got proper inference, then this kind of exclusion would be applied in all areas of inference. Right. In other words, if I'm a doctor and you come in and you've had three heart attacks, I'm going to just ignore that when I'm looking at you. And doctors don't do that. And if if I'm hiring people and I say, well, you know, this person has basically defrauded three of his previous employers, I'm not going to hire this person. And we don't think of those people as making bad inferences. We think, of course, that makes perfect sense. So we don't impose that same exclusionary rule on all of our decision making, even though these are the same people that would presumably be on on a jury. So what I find interesting is that the evidentiary rules seem to do the work of other things that we're trying to achieve, right? Not simply about proper inference. We're also targeting some other kind of justice-related outcome. And it turns out that at least some of these rules, and many
1: of them I might discard, as I gather you might discard some of them, many of them have been created around a criminal law model. So one of the important issues in evaluating evidence is what turns on. And if we have a criminal law model and what turns on it is that someone is going to go to prison for a long time or possibly even be executed, we are really worried about making a certain kind of mistake. And because of that, the law, especially in the criminal law, has a different evaluation of false positives versus false negatives than other people. You mentioned the example of a physician. For them, it's just the opposite. Yes, there are some drugs that have dangerous side effects, but lots of drugs are helpful and don't have dangerous side effects or have minimal side effects. So a doctor making a decision about whether to prescribe the drug or not might say, okay, let's try it. If it doesn't work, no great loss. The, the false positive is a relatively small consequence. The law has a different view about, at least about the criminal law. And that's one of the reasons why for physicians and many others, the preference in many cases would be overtreatment rather than Mm undertreatment. But if we think about the law, and if we think about the treatment as punishment, at least in the criminal law, the law, for good reasons, has a preference in a world of uncertainty for undertreatment rather than overtreatment.
0: So in data science, we talk about the confusion matrix and the cost-benefit matrix. So the confusion matrix is the the proportion of false positives and false negatives that we get as a result of the classification rule we're using. And then the cost-benefit is the costs and benefits of the different true and false positives. But it seems like part of the reason why we use the classifiers that we use in the law is because we're stuck with these kind of binary outcomes. You're either guilty or you're not guilty. You're either guilty of murder, you're not guilty of murder, and you can't have, you you know, you're slightly guilty. (laughs) In other words, you could say you're 50% likely to have committed the crime, therefore we're going to give you half the sentence. In practice, we do that with plea bargains, but the underlying structure of the laws is very binary. And does that binary nature of the outcome dictate the evidentiary rules
1: to some degree i think it does and it not it's not just evidentiary rules it's a lot of other things about legal procedure i actually did a, <clears throat> in a book almost 20 years ago called profiles probabilities and stereotypes that has some number of pages about exactly what you have just mentioned and in a way the law is the law refuses to operate on what the statisticians would call an expected value basis. Mm-hmm. So, as you correctly say, judges and juries are not permitted to say, you are 60% likely to have done this, so we will give you 60% of the maximum sentence. The law is oddly but not uniquely binary. It's much the same in some number of enterprises in Sports, for example, football referees cannot say, "I'm not sure whether you were holding or not." So the give you
0: a seven-yard penalty.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. The penalty is seven or eight yards rather than ten or fifteen or something like that. But law which has a particularly strong preference for certainty and closure, tends to avoid, in almost all cases, except, as you say, maybe in plea bargaining, the value calculations, there is some evidence that indicates that in civil cases— juries might do the same thing, but they're not supposed to. Officially, juries are not supposed to reach compromise verdicts or probabilistic verdicts or whatever. If somebody has suffered a loss of $10,000, a jury is not permitted to say, we think that 60% likely that loss actually occurred, so we'll award $6,000. Mm-hmm. A jury misbehaves if they do that, but they probably do it.
0: Yeah, but you also point out that any attempt to map on probabilities to these burdens of proof doesn't really work. So in in science, we like to talk about, oh, you know, statistical significance and 5% and so forth. But an attempt to say clear and convincing evidence corresponds to some percentage or beyond a reasonable doubt corresponds to some percentage, it it doesn't really really map that, that easily. And you describe a couple of interesting examples like the paradox of the gate crasher and some other ones where the probabilities seem to line up with what the law requires, but you still get a different result i think there are two issues here one is law
1: probabilistic just in general and there are big debates and some of these paradoxes like the paradox of the gate crasher or the equally well-known problem of the blue bus and a few others wrestle with whether the law is ultimately probabilistic But that's a different issue from the question of, can the probabilities be reduced to numbers? And at least one view is, by reducing them to numbers, you make something appear more certain than it actually is. But there's another view, and actually there are distinguished judges on both sides of this debate that say, yes, it's hard to get it exactly right, but trying to translate very fuzzy terms like clear and convincing evidence, balance of the probabilities, or proof beyond the reasonable doubt into numbers can clarify things. That however uncertain the numbers might be, maybe they're a little bit more certain and a little bit more clarifying than just using the fuzziness um, of language. So it's an interesting uh, and important debate. I suppose my preferences are a little bit in the side of trying to use more rather than fewer numbers, recognizing the deficiencies of numbers, but also recognizing that in a lot of areas it can help. It may also be the case, related to all of this, that law makes good television. And because law makes good television, maybe not accurate television, but good television, a lot of what people think about evidence may be more influenced by what the law does than is Really appropriate. There are a lot of other issues, I mentioned doctors making diagnoses, but a lot of other issues, including current political events, in which evidence is really important, but we're a little bit too influenced by what we see on television, which not only focuses on law, but focuses on criminal law and the notion of beyond a reasonable doubt. If we are concerned with where did COVID 19 start or What did Donald Trump say to whom on January the 6th, 2021? It's common for people to say misleadingly, there's no direct evidence of it, no concrete evidence of this, which they're smuggling in the idea of unless something is absolutely certain or concrete or direct or conclusive, we ought to really discount it. Maybe for many of these non-criminal law issues in everyday life, we shouldn't discount quite that much. We can have a pretty good idea of who said what to whom on January 6, 2021. A pretty good idea of where COVID started a pretty good idea of whether Thomas Jefferson was the father of Sally Hemings' children. All of these are issues in which we ought to perk up our ears when somebody says about something, there's no direct evidence, there's no concrete evidence, it's only circumstantial evidence. That may be at least the first of those, may be appropriate in some legal domains, not necessarily in other domains. Indeed, even the law doesn't draw a distinction between direct and circumstantial evidence. As I mentioned in the book, the claim that something is only circumstantial evidence is a common public relations ploy of lawyers for guilty defendants. But circumstantial evidence is probabilistic and often is very good evidence.
0: You talk about the importance in distinguishing between, say, facts and inference, facts and interpretation, interpretation and judgment, yeah. positive and normative, all of these things. And at one point you say, this stuff is obvious to the point of, of banality, but I don't think it is to, to most people. When de Tocqueville described how the law was a central part of American life, and pretty much every person was engaged in some kind of litigation at some point in their lives, although I don't think he imp- he said it explicitly, it implied maybe that gave people some exposure to these kinds of concepts and maybe thinking like a lawyer might be something that everybody in American society might be able to do. But my experience is that very few people actually think like lawyers. Okay, they think like lawyers in one way, which is that they think like litigators. They start with the conclusion and they work backwards. That's the only kind of similarity I find between sort of the ordinary way of thinking and thinking like a lawyer. But thinking like a lawyer in the sense that you distinguish between fact and inference and so forth. This doesn't seem to me to be obvious to the point of banality for most people. How pervasive is thinking like a lawyer, as you describe in your book with that title?
1: I think you are right. It's not as pervasive as we might think. And as you suggest, it's not even that pervasive among lawyers and judges. Lawyers um, start with a client who wants an outcome and works backwards from there. An influential strand of legal theory called legal realism says judges often do the same thing, that judges hear about some case or fact, set of facts or whatever, and then they decide as a matter of equity or fairness or politics or something what the right result, all things considered, ought to be, And then they work backwards from there to try to find legal justifications for that. That's probably a little overblown. Judges would think it's dramatically overblown, but there's a germ of truth to it. But I do think that the idea of legal reasoning, that is taking rules seriously as rules, taking precedent seriously as precedent, things that are important in everyday law tend not to be understood or appreciated by most people. So thinking like a lawyer is a little bit more of a, if not unique, um, rare skill that not everyone has and not everyone ought to have. Again, like the law of evidence, much of thinking like a lawyer is about excluding things. It's about excluding what common sense would tell you, excluding what justice would tell you uh, in the service of rules or in the service of uh, what some just... Judge decided 200 years ago, or something of that sort. So, lots of legal reasoning about precedent, about rules, about the importance of authority is and in some tension with what ordinary people do.
0: If people who think like a lawyer might overestimate the prevalence of such thinking, it seems like people who don't think like lawyers maybe underestimate it. The legal realist view that you describe seems to be the conventional wisdom about, say, Supreme Court decisions. The popular conception is that if you, say, rule against uh, Roe v. Wade, it must be because you have some you know, religious motivation or something. It, the idea that it, there might be some independent kind of legal way of thinking seems to be relatively foreign, I think, to most people.
1: I think it is relatively foreign to most people but there's also a lot of empirical evidence that indicates that in very high political salience cases in the supreme court the legal realist account is probably right but that's a skewed subset of all legal events yes there's lots of empirical research by empirical political scientists that indicate that what Supreme Court justices or how Supreme Court justices vote about abortion or affirmative action or religion in the public square or things of this sort is highly correlated with their pre-legal or extra-legal moral and political views about these things. Once we leave the Supreme Court, in its self-selected docket of 70 high salience cases a year and go to ordinary everyday law, things look very different. Most judges don't get to select the cases they are going to decide. We're now talking about literally hundreds of thousands or more litigated matters a year. Most of them have pretty low political moral stakes, even if they might have financial stakes. And in those cases, Thinking like a lawyer, the techniques of legal reasoning turn out to make a difference. I can give a Supreme Court example, um, although it's in a way it's unusual in this regard. So, the Supreme Court about ten years ago decided a case involving the highly technical issue of. Admiralty jurisdiction regarding taxation. And the issue of admiralty jurisdiction regarding taxation turned out to be an issue of what was the appropriate. Which courts were appropriate to decide this issue? And the Supreme Court had to decide the question, is a houseboat a house, or a houseboat a boat? If it turns out that a houseboat is a boat, then it's an admiralty case, and the federal courts get to hear it. If a houseboat is a house, then it's not an admiralty case, and the state courts hear it. Nobody cares except the litigants. That puts it a little bit more hyperbolically than is appropriate, but judges didn't go into that case. Nobody goes into those issues with political or ideological priors about whether houseboats or houses or houseboats or boats. Most lower court cases look like that, in which case the law and legal reasoning actually makes a difference.
0: I think my favorite case from jurisprudence was whether tomato is a, a fruit or a vegetable. Right. That, was, that opinion was, I think, my favorite opinion ever written. You talk a lot about testimony, right? And how at the end of the day, most of what we believe is a function of testimony by someone. Someone told us something, and there's a you know chain of testimony. Somebody told us something that they heard from somebody who told it from somebody. And ultimately, you know, the credibility that we lend to this testimony is fundamentally, it's based on, it's basically an epistemological theory, right? How much credibility and credence do we give to people based on who they are and the manner by which they acquired this information and that we implicitly will provide epistemic enhancements or discounts based on what we know about this testimony. To, to what extent does the legal approach to kind of testimony accord with you know how we view testimony in other domains? One of the more interesting insights in the book was that you know, I'm an historian and his history and the law are trying to do the same thing. They're trying to figure out, okay, w- what happened? And it reminded me when I was, re- I remember reading the, the deists, the 18th century deists who said, Christ must have risen because somebody was there and they said it happened. And then somebody reported, re- told was told by somebody who was told by somebody who was told by somebody. And they, I remember they, they applied like this logic of hearsay. How should we interpret this testimony? Do we view the, the rules that we use in historical understanding? Are there lessons to be learned there for the courts? I think yes, but to use your examples, history and law have a lot in common in that they
1: are both heavily dependent on testimony, heavily dependent on what somebody has said. Not every domain of inquiry is quite as dependent on testimony. Yes, police officers, detectives rely on Testimony rely on what somebody said, but they also do a lot of direct investigation. We have this image of Sherlock Holmes with his deerstalker hat and his big magnifying glass, actually looking at clues. Judges and juries don't do that. Historians tend not to do that, but at least in lots of areas, science, most obviously, although forensic science and criminal detection uh, as well, um, the Uh, Gold standard is actual direct uh, observation or actual direct experimentation. Uh, Law, uh, except in very rare cases, doesn't do direct observation, doesn't do direct experimentation even when it could. So it relies even more heavily on what somebody has said. And in that sense, as you suggest, it's like history but it's unlike a lot of science, it's unlike a lot of empirical inquiry,
0: it's unlike a lot of experimentation. So uh, you point out that if, you know, a photograph is submitted as evidence in a, in a court case, it can only be submitted if you have some person come in, and, like the photographer or... You know, and, and so, you know, we live in a world where we've got cameras everywhere and we've got sensors everywhere and we're hoovering up all this data. Why, why do we still need to have someone come in and explain how cameras work and how, how photographs work and that sort of thing?
1: I think photographs are interesting. The legal rules about all of this, the, including the ones that you just mentioned, developed back a long time ago when people didn't trust photographs, Um then people learned to trust photographs, and now we are not learning how to distrust photographs. Matthew Brady did not have Photoshop, and although those of us who still do black and white still photography with film understand that you can manipulate even film photography in the Photoshop era, in the everybody has a camera in their telephone era, I think people recognize a little bit more than maybe they did 50 years ago that um, photographs may at times not be all they seem. Again, to come back to my theme, the fact that they are not all that they seem doesn't mean that they're nothing. Mm -hmm. Photograph typically still tells you something and accurately tells you something that third-hand hearsay evidence does not. Maybe not even something that firsthand eyewitness testimony does not. Photographic evidence is not perfect in an era of Photoshop and the like. We now understand this, but it's often pretty good evidence. And to come back to Bayesian ideas again, a photograph may increase the likelihood of something, even if it's not certain. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, you also talk about the role of experts and expertise. And, you know, it seems like the courts actually play a very important role in determining what constitutes legitimate science, right? Now, whether we're talking about fingerprint evidence or bite marks or that kind of forensic evidence. But, but even things like, presumably, astrology right, <laughs> can come under the, the scrutiny of courts. A lot of people would say that if you are not an expert, then you can't possibly evaluate the legitimacy of the expertise within a domain. But the the courts, at the end of the day, have to be able to evaluate expertise from the outside. How is that even possible? How can you evaluate expertise if you are yourself not an expert? And judges purport to be generalists, and they purport to have some... I don't know, meta-filtration system, which allows them to decide on expertise without being experts themselves. How do you do this? It's hard. You've correctly identified in a way intractable
1: problem, but maybe it's a little bit tractable. Once we recognize that there are certain indicia of expertise that may be more accessible to non-experts than others. The trite example, the winner of a Nobel Prize in chemistry, probably knows something about chemistry. And I don't know anything about chemistry, but if I know that this person has won a Nobel Prize in chemistry, that's a credential that allows me to give what they say a little bit more or a lot more credibility. Now, this can be abused, Lawyers often know, unfortunately, that certain people look like experts even if they're not. The extent to which lawyers, even if they don't admit it, will prefer scholarly-looking white males with tweed jackets and elbow patches and beards just because they look like experts and can talk as sound like experts is a problem, but at its best, a certain form of credentialism can enable an outsider at least to evaluate expertise. The courts have been involved in this for about 30 years. It used to be that courts were less involved and the determination was largely made by juries deciding who to believe and who not to believe, including experts. Then the Supreme Court at least for federal courts, not for state courts can do whatever they want about ordinary non-constitutional evidentiary issues. But the Supreme Court said that for federal courts, the judge has a certain kind of gatekeeping role in making sure that experts or people who purport to be experts and therefore give opinions and conclusions are actually experts. That is, they actually have the ability to say things that are reliable. One of the reasons the Supreme Court did this is that they too were worried, as the law of evidence has been worried, that jurors are likely to be bamboozled, Judge Posner's term. Jurors are likely to be bamboozled by alleged experts who may not be. So therefore, the Supreme Court said that for federal courts, judges have to act as gatekeepers in making sure that what experts say, that their expertise passes certain kind of external tests of reliability. Interestingly, you mentioned astrology. Even earlier, back in the 19th century, lots of people believed in phrenology. That is, that you can predict people's behavior and character by the terrain of their skull.
0: And Well, they had was, academic appointments in this. They had journals. They okay. had... They
1: had, had, know, a, uh, had the whole nine yards. Yeah. You could get degrees in it. There were journals in it. The president of Harvard believed in it and endorsed it. All sorts of things made phrenology look very much like any other form of science. Then, it turned out that people discovered that um, phrenology was, to use President Biden's favorite new term, malarkey. Like astrology, it doesn't predict anything. It can't predict anything. It's not an evidentiary marker of anything. But for a long time, phrenology looked like a science, looked like a source of good evidence. That ought to make, give us some pause before we rely too much on the trappings of expertise in order to determine that somebody's an expert or not. And this is still with us. There are experts in all sorts of things these days where some of this expert expertise is let us say controversial there are people that build themselves as experts in body language and there are controversies about whether there can be experts in body language or not and there are a whole bunch of others. One of the ones I mentioned in the book is that there are people who claim to be lifestyle experts. I don't know what a lifestyle expert is, but the people who claim to be lifestyle experts say that they have expertise about better and worse lifestyles. So the phrenology problem, in a way, is still with us.
0: You also uh, talk about motivated reasoning. And what what I really liked about that section of the book is that you, you, you talk about how motivated reasoning breaks down into motivated information production, information transmission, information retrieval, and uh, you know, information processing, right? So there's all different stages where, you know, the marketplace of ideas can break down. To what extent do you think that the judicial process acknowledges that and maybe even cultivates and harvests it? Because all of the parties to a lawsuit, they're clearly motivated in in some way. Is the court system really about accepting all that motivation and figuring out ways to balance it, right? Is there there something that the rest of the world can kind of learn from how the legal system acknowledges the motivations but designs, I I guess, an architecture for counterbalancing these different forms of motivated reasoning?
1: There's a little bit of that. The law thinks that cross-examination is one way of dealing with this. The law at times thinks that jury decision-making, which involves typically 12 minds rather than one, is a way around this. I think the law is... Whether cross-examination actually works is something else again. Some of us a little older than you were raised on the classic Perry Mason episodes in which Perry Mason had a witness on the stand and under intense cross-examination, the witness would say, I can't take it anymore. I did it. That doesn't happen. But cross examination can still be useful in embellishing, contextualizing, and so on. So too can the adversary system. The law- legal system um, says we won't make a conclusion unless we hear both sides. We don't see very much of that in everyday life. So the adversary system, cross examination, and a whole bunch of other things are ways of guarding against potentially motivated reasoning. What the legal realists might have reminded us of, or reminded us of, is that judges are not immune from this, and that judges may engage in motivated reasoning as well. That is, how they see the law and how they see the facts is influenced by what they want the facts to be, how they want the case to come out. I do think that adversarial presentation, or at least hear the, hearing both sides and a bunch of other things that the law does, is... An, Admittedly, imperfect way of trying to counterbalance some of the problems of motivated reasoning, seeing the world, seeing the factual world in ways that comport with your normative preferences. I wish we had more of that in non-legal life. Um, the notion of yes, you've got to hear the other side. Uh, The notion of cross-examining people whose outcomes you like is rare. And there are a bunch of other things that the law does that maybe it would be better if we saw more of it in everyday life, more of it in politics, more of it in journalism, and so on. The typical congressional hearing, for example, it's called a hearing, but it's a performance. The typical hearing is a way of getting certain actors to perform as expected in order to confirm the results of the members of Congress who are conducting the hearing. When the CEOs of pharmaceuticals, companies or cigarette companies or whatever are asked to come and testify at a congressional hearing. They're not being asked to provide information to members of Congress who are uncertain. They are being asked to humiliate themselves so that members of Congress can make stump speeches. I wish in more domains of life we did things a little bit closer to what the law does.
0: Now, before I let you go, I have to ask you one question about this other book called The Force of Law. And I know you can't (laughs) summarize the book in two minutes, but you're trying to address this debate in jurisprudence between kind of the the Bentham view of the law as backed by force, right? And the HLA Hart view of law as providing rules that can be internalized by the folks who are subject to that law. What is at stake with this debate? And where do you think the kind of right now We fall on this debate within the legal community. It
1: is an interesting academic debate about just how important the threat of force and the threat of sanctions is to legal compliance. I think it's more important than most legal theorists think it is. Most legal theorists, as you said, since HLA Hart in 1961, or maybe um, others, believe that people internalize the law and that they often do things just because the law says so. I'm on the other side of that debate. I think that's possible in theory, but unlikely in practice. I think it has very important practical implications when we design our laws, when we design our legal system should we design our laws and our legal system in such a way that we rely on people's willingness to obey the law just because it is the law? Or should we design our laws and our legal system um, on the assumption law for very good reasons often uh, requires people to do things that they don't want to do? And in those circumstances, law, it seems to me, uh, and that's what I argue, um, needs to threaten people with unpleasant sanctions. Um, uh, some years ago, um, Montana, uh, which has... We all know, has a lot of space and not very many people, eliminated numerical speed limits. That was a disaster. And shortly thereafter, they brought back numerical speed limits. It's one example of the way in which, if we think that people ought to do certain things that they don't want to do, but for the common good, we may need force and sanctions and coercion more than most legal theorists
0: nowadays. Think we need? There are other, obviously, non-legal sanctions in the form of social ostracism that seem to do a lot of the work. In the kind of behavioral law and economics debate, the debate really boils down to whether the norms are driving the law or whether the law can drive the norms and what that feedback l- loops look like. Certainly during the, the coronavirus pandemic, we saw a lot of people wearing masks and doing other sorts of things. And there doesn't really appear to be any real enforcement. There were laws that were passed, or but they didn't seem to have any teeth, and yet people seem to... Do you think that the behavior was driven entirely by norms that, and it would have had the same impact regardless of what the pronouncements, legal and political pronouncements were? Or did the legal and political pronouncements and sanctions or at least threats of sanctions, help to make those social norms more 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 binding? I think
1: it's some of both, but it's closest to what you just said in your last phrase. Think about the announcement that airline flight attendants make about smoking in the bathrooms. They don't just say, It's annoying. They don't just say it's unhealthy. Um, What they say is uh, it's a violation of FAA regulations. The law may empower, uh, and at times it may empower scolding. Um, One of the things I talk about in the book are the changing norms about picking up your dog's poop. It turns out that one of the things that the law has done in this area is it empowers the scolds. Mm-hmm. If I see somebody who's not picking up their dog poop and I say, that's disgusting or that's wrong, it may have less of an effect than if I say to them that that's a violation of the law. <laughs> and there's some research that indicates that the law can at times have this reinforcing tendency. And at times, law is more than just reinforcing. There are things that people just don't want to do, and they don't even understand why they should have to do it, but nevertheless, it's for the common good. In those areas, force is particularly important.
0: Well, Fred, I think we could talk a lot longer about any of your books, going back to the ones on stereotyping or the one on thinking like a lawyer, force of law, and most recently this book, The Proof. Everybody check it out. Thank you so much, Fred, for joining me.
1: Thank you. It's been lots of fun. I enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.